I've said before that students in K-12 classical Christian schools are often the most neglected population in our schools. Well, what do I mean by that? School leaders put a lot of energy into educating parents and grandparents, donors, even alumni, but our own students often miss out on the vision casting and opportunities for buy-in to the model and the amazing education that they're getting every day. And parents with young children who start out in kindergarten usually don't spend a lot of time over the subsequent years explaining to their children why they're in a classical Christian school. And how do we better onboard older students who join classical Christian schools in their middle or high school years so that they too will catch the vision? You see, all along the way, our students are dutifully putting on their uniforms and following what is expected. But what if we took the time to give them a beautiful vision for their education and help them to, quote, own, even love that education? Josh Gibbs is back today to talk about his newest publication that he directed specifically to prospective and current students to help them understand and lean in on the gift of a classical Christian education. Join me for this episode of Basecamp Live. Mountains, we all face them as we seek to influence the next generation. Get equipped to conquer the challenges, summit the peak, and shape exceptionally thoughtful, compassionate, and flourishing human beings. We call it Ancient Future Education for Raising the Next Generation. Welcome to Basecamp Live. Now your host, Davies Owens. Hey, Basecamp Live listeners, before we get started with this episode of Josh Gibbs, as always, want to invite you to connect. I'm actually going to be this summer in June, a couple different places. I'll be at the SCL conference June 15 through 18 in Dallas. If you're there, love to say hi to you. I'll be seeing that conference. I'll also be um, at the Basecamp Live booth. Stop by. We'll be doing live interviews there. I'll also a week later be at the ACCS conference, also in Dallas, also at the booth. And as always, love to greet you and say hello to you. You can also drop us an email, info at basecamplive.com, and you can leave a voicemail or text at the 833-595-2929 number, 833-595-2929. Special thanks to our sponsors, Classical Academic Press, the Focus Group, and CLT. That's the classic learning test. Well, I'm excited to welcome back Josh Gibbs. He's uh, no stranger to our movement. I highly regarded a teacher there at Veritas Classical School in Richmond, Virginia. Uh, he lectures to teachers on pedagogy uh, and the great books. He's the author of uh, his book, kind of his own bio, How to Be Unlucky. We did a podcast on that back in October of 21. Josh is a frequent speaker at the SCL conferences. He's an Alquin Fellow, member of the Templeton Honors College Advisory Board, prolific writer. And best of all, he's just a, he's a practitioner. He's in the classroom every day with students, and he has his finger on the pulse, which is one of the reasons he wrote this helpful pamphlet for students that I encourage you to take a look at. We'll tell you more how to get it. But for now, join me for this interview with Josh Gibbs. Josh Gibbs, welcome back to Basecamp Live. Always glad to be here. Thank you. Um, for those who uh, I was just saying, Josh, you were definitely no stranger to Basecamp. We had you on Back, I think it was October 21st, just last year, um, talking about your book, How to Be Unlucky, which I highly recommend the podcast, highly recommend the book. A lot of that's Josh's own story. Um, you are in a very strategic position there at Veritas. You are sitting in the classroom, uh, standing in the classroom, being with students all day. Um, Josh, I like to, I've often said here on the podcast, I think the most neglected group of people in our classical Christian uh, education movement are our own students who uh, sign up. Uh, or who actually whose parents have signed them up and they 
willingly show up in their uniforms and go through this K-12 journey. And maybe along the way have never really formally been given the opportunity to understand what this thing is, um, which might be really helpful. I, I assume that's part of what was in your thinking when you put together this wonderfully uh, winsome booklet. So your parents are thinking of sending you to a classical Christian school. Yes, I was thinking about that. I was thinking about the fact that I regularly hear students say things in the classroom that are obviously opposed to the very spirit of the education that we're providing or that I'm providing. And I wonder, did no one ever explain to you, has no one ever explained to you what sort of school this is and what we believe at schools like this? Um, you know, especially when a student says something like, well, new things are better than old things. Or, yeah. uh, and, I, and I think, did you never wonder about the classical part of a classical education? Doesn't classical sound like an interest in old things, an appreciation of old things? And if you're saying new things are better than old things at a classical school, are you at least expecting to get some kickback um, or some pushback on that? Um, so after hearing students say enough things in my own classrooms um, that seemed as though they didn't really understand what I or any of their other teachers were trying to do. It seemed like we need to cut this off um, as early as possible. And so writing a booklet, a booklet about classical education for prospective students uh, would probably be best. Well, you know, it's, and we're in a moment in time and I've heard many school leaders administrators say uh, with genuine concern for the shifting culture, not only the, the obvious changes of, of just our, you know, the, the smartphone world around us, but because of the influx of so many new families and new students into schools, I was talking to a head recently who said as much as a third to a half of our school population is going to be comprised of new students and new families who bring wow. who knows what culture. And I know that's not typical, but because of some schools being in a position to absorb in that kind of growth right now, it's it's putting them in a very uh, potentially unstable place. So uh, to your point, finding missionally aligned families is more needed than ever. So, um, yes. yeah. So uh, what are, what are maybe just kind of, you, you gave us an example there of some of the consequences of students maybe being resistant, old things and new things. What are just some other kind of consequences of failing to get alignment uh, with our, especially, and, and I would say this is really, am I correct, and that you're really kind of going after more of the logic rhetoric school student. Uh, is that a, a fair assumption? At, at the moment, yes. I'd like to write a pamphlet that's specifically uh, geared towards parents and maybe even parents of elementary school students. But um, I think a lot of administrators have seen um that it's relatively easy to buy into classical education when your kid's in second grade and it gets progressively harder to buy into it uh, the older you get. And so um, the, the premises of a classical education are sort of easy to swallow. Uh, back in second or third grade when transcripts aren't on the line uh, and you don't have children that are you know begging for all of the benefits and the nice things about public school like prom or... Yeah. Um, you know, but as soon as you get to eighth or ninth or 10th grade, then all of a sudden there's this sort of longing for the way that they do things back in Egypt. And you're like, what about the meat pots and the leeks and the garlic? And we could have as much as we wanted back in Egypt. And, and those sort of, um, yeah, those sort of complaints in the 
wilderness of classical education become more common in eighth or ninth grade. And so it seems like there's a sort of rising discontent with classical education, the older that students mm. get, um, simply because, you know, when kids are young and small and cute and you teach them Latin chants, it all sounds, you know, it's all fairly agreeable. But by the time you're reading um, Paradise Lost and taking it seriously, uh, and you're getting C's on essays you write because you don't have any sort of attention span because you're a cell phone junkie. Then all of a sudden, the, the premises <laughs> of a classical education seem really difficult, and people start complaining that it's too hard or out of touch. Mm. And and you think, well, I mean, you signed up for a classical education. Why are you complaining when we actually started reading old books and the requirements got difficult? Yeah. But I think that that's increasingly common in schools. No, it's... It- it truly is, Josh. And again, this is why I'm so grateful that you're tackling this because I think somebody as a casual observer just looking in into our movement would say, okay, so wait a minute, you've got basically a 13-year business relationship with your customer. You sold them once 13 years ago or six years ago on this amazing thing of which at that point, the customer, to your point, was you know, a cute little six, six year old. And, right. and I think a lot of families do, they, they would, if they were brutally honest, they'd say we, we bought Mayberry, we needed Mayberry, but you know, uh, we got to take Opie and get him up to the big city here before we send him off to college. And, you know, all these quaint little frumpy things are really not helpful and, and students are making their own interpretations. Um, hmm. You know, and, and I want to get into some of the specific topics so people can hear the level of, of, of conversation that you're putting in front of these in front of these uh, prospective students. And I think even for existing students in our schools, this pamphlet would be extremely helpful. I remember a few years ago, we had a graduate at Ambrose who went off to the Naval Academy and they came back at Christmas and I was just asking them to give some reflection on the, what is it like to show up as a freshman plebe at the Naval Academy. And they said, you know, the first thing they did was they took us into this grand uh, chapel there on campus and proceeded to... Um, just give us a, a bit of a history lesson of your you basically went along the lines of you're stepping now into the flow of a rich history of the Naval Academy and everything you've ever known before is now gone. You're, you're you know, whatever I'm butchering how it was said, but the, the point of it was you, you got a vision for who you're going to become if you're willing to endure the next four years of what this is going to do for you. And I suspect, you know, this, this uh, Ambrose grad just said, you know, it didn't sound necessarily all that pleasant, but the vision that was given to me of being a proud uh, graduate of the Naval Academy, where that would position me in life and what it would give me meant that if I had to go crawl through a mud hole and endure, you know, difficult challenges of the next four years, it was nothing compared with the vision at the end was strong. And I think that's what I hear you saying is we haven't, necessarily equipped our students to catch the vision other than quit complaining about Latin and uniforms and get on with it. And virtue is a good thing. So um, is that, is that kind of a sense again of where you're seeing the need? Yeah. I like the, um, the idea of, well, what you just described in terms of giving a vision of where all of this is going. I think that that's, I think that that's very important. I was at least part of the inspiration for this pamphlet was, um, uh, reading the rule of St. Benedict and realizing how hard it was to get into a Benedictine monastery and yet people still wanted in. Mm. So, you know, you hear these, um, well, you read the account of how to accept a new, just how to accept somebody into the monastery to become a novice before they even become a monk. And they show up and they knock at the door and someone comes out and says, what do you want? And 
<laughs> the the person who wants to join the monastery says, "Well, I want to become a monk." And you say, "No, I'm I'm sorry. You seem like a very nice person, but there's a mistake. This is an impossible life. You you are under some false pretense that, that this is uh, something that you really want. You don't go away, friend. Sorry." And if you stay there for another day, then somebody comes out and says the same thing, and then another day, and and if you can last four days of people telling you you don't really want this. Then they'll let you in, and you're a novitiate for mm. the novitiate period's like a year long. Um, and I also uh, also think of like Dante entering the gates of purgatory. The, the guardian at the gates of purgatory says, "What do you want? Beware! You may regret coming here." <laughs> and um, and I, I I was thinking, you know, wouldn't it be fascinating if, as opposed to begging people to come to classical schools and showing them how great they are. What if it was actually a little more difficult to get mm. in? What, are we going to sink ourselves by making it a little harder to get through the door? Yeah. Um, I, I, I don't think we are. I, I think that there's a lot to be gained from presenting a classical education as somewhat daunting, yeah. as, as opposed to merely using all of these gardening metaphors of you know cultivation and nurture, which make it sound like this incredibly pleasant process that no one would possibly object to. <laughs> <laughs> and I, I think you oversell it in yeah. that case. And I, and I think that a school that's, that has a contingent of people for whom the product is oversold are going to yeah. crumble and complain, and it's going to be leaven. It's a great point. That would be, a, if any schools out there want to take on this challenge, I think it'd be really interesting to just create a, uh, a, a you know, a different tact on your marketing. Uh, this is not, you know, you probably don't want to come to this school. I mean, it, of right. course, people are going to hear it as, I knew you people were elitist. See, that's right. no, that's not the point. But you make the point in the pamphlet along those lines that so often, uh, because parents come in uh, ill-equipped and their students are ill-equipped, they just see it as a private school and then they get frustrated with, wait a minute, there's more than a two-page paper after write. And, you know, your point in the pamphlet I loved, which is this is basically just the organic version. Like, you know, it tastes about the same. This is the Whole Foods version of education. You know, we're going to just charge you more and have fancier things. But, right. yeah, you got to get it right. Well, let's let's jump in before we take a break. I mean, let's yeah. take, for instance, again, your audience are the students. Their parents potentially have said, hey, Johnny, I found this new school for you. It's really great. And the kid goes on, looks at the website, uniforms and stacks of books. And, and the first concern probably is uniform. So let's tackle that one. Why, what do you say about uniforms? Because I could see that being a, a friction point right out of the gates for a lot of kids. I think that, I think that uniforms are, are a convenient icon for what classical schools are doing on a, on a broad level. Um, and I, I think that it's easy to present uniforms as a, a wholly practical concern to students. Um, I've heard a lot of bad arguments in favor of uniforms um, in, in teaching in private schools for 17 years. I've heard a lot of bad, highly practical sort of, sort of arguments in favor of uniforms. But I like uniforms, and I start the pamphlet really with uniforms, um, because I think that uniforms convey to students the singularity of purpose that they all have in as much as they are students. And so many students come to, come to any school and even classical schools thinking of the classroom as a platform like um, TikTok or Facebook, wherein they are going to perform for people 
and receive praise for their performances. Um, and they also think of school as a place where I'm going to go to figure myself out. I'm going to go to school to be myself and affirm myself, discover myself, forge my own identity. And uniforms say, no, that's not why you're here. A uniform conveys the importance of a single vision of a common goal that everyone is striving for. And that common goal does not obliterate your individuality but it certainly puts the importance of your individuality on the back burner and says, while you're at this school, it's not that you are not an individual, but the aspects of your personhood that make you an individual are less important than the aspects of your person that bind you and unite mm. you with others. Yeah. And I think all that's suggested by the uniform and, and because, um, because, a, a classical education is is concerned with the formation of virtue and virtue is not up for debate virtue is not a thing that you invent on your own i think the uniform is a is a a significant yeah. icon of the whole classical project now that's very well said josh i remember one of the first base camp live podcasts i did was on the topic of why we were uniforms and i remember one of the points that we made in there was that uh the person I was interviewing at school administrator said, you know, what's interesting is that because the uniform does create a uniformity of our bodies, we're more inclined to look the person distinctively at their face and their eyes. Like we actually see them um, in their, in their, they are distinct individuals as opposed to they've got on a, you know, a, a, a trendy outfit and you actually lose that the person made in the image of God in the midst of all of the uh, the accoutrements that sit on top. So at any rate, I mean, there's it, to your point, exactly. I think that, uh, our students probably would be relieved and inspired by that, that, um, you're, you're treating me, uh, in, in a more noble way. Um, yeah. I want to, you, you, you then lead in your pamphlet. And I'm not going to give it all away because there's a lot here and it's really, really good, but you talk a lot about why classical Christian schools don't treat self-expression as a priority. You were just commenting on that. I want to take a break and come back to that. And then we're going to look at another area, another uh, phrase we throw around a lot, truth, goodness, and beauty. There's probably a lot of uh, uh, logic rhetoric students whose eyes glaze over when they hear this. Um, but there's a lot there that you explain well that, that a young person, I think, can get excited about. So we'll come right back with Josh Gibbs. Hi, I'm Brad Leyland, CEO of The Focus Group. Our mission is to advance the kingdom of God by building trusting relationships with our clients and providing them with expertise and guidance to accelerate the funding of their vision. Effectively, we want to see God make all things new through the work of our clients. Over the past decade, we've partnered with dozens of classical Christian schools in helping them build new buildings, renovate old buildings, and do far more than they ever dreamed or imagined. We are honored to play a role in the growth of this very important movement. If your school is ready to go to the next level, we'd love to talk with you. For more information, please visit us at thefocusgroup.com backslash classical. Welcome back, Josh. You were just talking about uniforms and about how uh, counter that is to the modern uh, modern narrative of we've all got to go find ourselves on this journey. And so you specifically talk in the article when speaking to these prospective students that we really are, don't treat self-expression as a priority. I mean, it's definitely countercultural. Why did you choose that topic and how do you explain that to young people? Well, a lot of, um, a lot of popular, a lot of secular culture is centered around the self. 
um, and the self is treated, the desires of the self, the preferences of the self, uh, are all treated as um, ultimate points of appeal. Like there's nothing beyond the appeal of that's just what I believe, that's just what I want, that's just what I prefer. Uh, and and because this is really a sort of religion that's that's carried out in popular culture, students arrive at the school or even in their time at the school after they're already enrolled, they're so regularly exposed to this belief um, that uh, it's important for teachers that do not accept the religion of the self to point out to students ways in which I'm approaching the very concept of humanity in a way that's opposed to or other than or the antithesis of nearly everything that you hear outside of the school. Um, and and if, you, if you don't point that out to students, if you don't call attention to that, I think that there are many students that will simply go through a classical education assuming that what they hear adults say in the classroom is basically can basically be made alloy with secular culture that anything that adults say can all be harmonized mm -hmm. whether i'm hearing it in school mm -hmm. or on the radio so you know you think about um you know truth goodness and beauty and then that's one of those again if i so you're this is back to part of the motivation isn't just what we're saying no to like, you know, it's really bad. Hey kids, self-expression's bad. Get over it and move on. But you're giving them, you're, you're exchanging that for something more attractive, no more noble and more compelling. So, you know, talk about that in light of truth, goodness, and beauty. Um, again, against the, the, the cultural norm of, you know, beauty is, as you say in the pamphlet, true beauty is, is your, just your shell is just yourself. And then really that's called shallow vanity and it's empty. Like you're, you don't even right. want to pursue that. We're going to give you something better. Right. Um, I, I not only want to offer something uh, something better to students, I also think that I can offer something that lasts. And um, when, you're, when your conception of yourself or when your identity is entirely bound up uh, with what you think and what you want today and what your preferences are today, then you end up with this self that's simply constantly in a state of flux. Um, and the, and the sort of desires that you have at 15 are different than the desires you have at 18, which are different than the desires that you have at 21. And when you don't have anything that's transcendent speaking into your life, or you're not, you don't, you're not yearning for or longing for anything transcendent, um, your beliefs are really dictated to you by whatever voice is shouting loudest right now. Um, so, you know, a, a question um, worth asking students um, is something like, and this is a bit aside of the pamphlet, but um, if you had to make a statement about race today that you were going to be held to for the rest of your life, would saying something popular about race today be a safe choice? And they all immediately sort of freak out at the idea of making a claim at, at 15 that you're going to be held to for the rest of their, you know, for the rest of your life. Because even at 15, they understand how quickly beliefs, popular beliefs, change. And that the most popular beliefs about gender, race, sex, politics, what have you, the most popular beliefs, the, one, the beliefs that are easiest to say and safest to say uh, on social media, um, 
are going to be very dangerous to say three or four years from now because things are just constantly changing. Um, and if you're and if you don't have any desire for transcendent things, for things that last, um, you really don't care about the truth. You only care about what's popular and what's easy. Um, and I, I suppose that there are some people who would readily admit, yes, I do not care about truth. I'm only willing to say what is popular and safe. Um, but I think that anyone with a, even a modicum of courage hmm. understands that the truth is not always popular and that the search for truth is thus going to be somewhat painful and fraught with anxiety. Okay. And that is what a classical education offers. It offers a genuine pursuit of truth and asks that people who enroll in it be indifferent um, to the to the unpopular nature of a desire for something that is not um, bound up entirely in the moment. And and don't you think that, I mean, young people are not so unself-aware that they, that they lack the reality. I mean, I think this is where a lot of depression's coming from is that they're painfully aware of the superficiality of so much that's passed off as find yourself in yourself or, I mean, we, we all right. long for the transcendence. And again, so if I'm, my parents have picked a school for me and they're telling me I can go there and find actually capital T truth and I can be a part of something transcendent. I mean, even a pimply faced seventh grader would probably say, yeah, I think I want that. I don't even fully understand it, but it sure sounds better than chasing the latest YouTube sensation around. Um, I would think it'd be right. freeing. So, and you could, for the kind yeah. of, for the kind of student that we want at this school, yes, it is freeing. Um, but I'm not, I mean, one of the reasons why I wrote the pamphlet is because I'm not entirely sure that what we're talking about right now is clearly communicated to everybody who is interested in pursuing and enrolling in classical schools. Um, I think that for a lot of people, um, uh, it's easy to agree to a few things about transcendence on the tour, but unless somebody really presses you and shows you just what you're going to have to give up, all the ephemeral things you're going to have to give up to pursue the transcendent. Mm -hmm. I think it's easy to sleepwalk into a classical school and to simply go through the motions for, for three or four years until all of a sudden a teacher in a humanities class says something which is antithetical to what is commonly held um, uh, that year or that week. And all of a sudden accusations are flying and the school is backwards and primitive and unenlightened and so <laughs> forth. And, and they were always those things. You just didn't know it because no one explained it well enough to mm -hmm. you up front. So can you think of specific instances and conversations with students where there was sort of this, this uh, Damascus road moment, if you will, where they're um, realizing, Oh, that's what this is all about. Yeah. Um, I mean, I, there's a, there's a few sort of stock lectures that I give uh, from one year to the next. Um, but uh, I, I regularly have students that are quite taken back um, when I give a lecture that concludes with be good, don't be yourself. And even at the end of the year, even after, you know, however many years they've been at the school, the idea that you shouldn't be yourself, but that you should, that you should strive to be good. Um, that um, like John the Baptist says, I must decrease that Christ may increase. And that's true of you too. Um, it seems as though this is a, a somewhat novel lesson. Uh, and I'm, by this point, it's proved a novel lesson one year after another, so that I'm not really shocked. I'm not shocked by the fact I'm shocked. Anymore. 
offer. Um, but yeah, the, the taking on uh, the fashionable um, slogans of self-advancement and, and, you know, DIY identity um, mm. it is for ninth and 10th graders, which are the grades that I typically teach, is, is still quite shocking. Mm-hmm. I could see, and a lot of you talk in the pamphlet about the importance of acquiring the right taste. And that's, yeah, I think, and talk a little bit about this because, and you give this great example of of the trans. You know, I think you bring this up in your classroom. Someone who hates coffee but has to learn to love it um, in order to get an inheritance. How right. does that process work? And and yeah, use that. Share some more on that because I think it's an excellent example of. Well, I think that there's a there's an assumption, um, an un, a sort of uncritically held assumption that. Um, everybody likes beautiful things or that, or that good things um, appeal to us in their goodness. And I don't think that's true. I think that good things are actually harder to like than uh, a lot of cool things, a lot of fashionable things, a lot of things that play entirely to the senses, but, but not really to the intellect. Um, and, and because American culture largely revolves around the senses, uh, an encounter with something that's truly good um, is is often a little off-putting initially, um, and so and so students hear the music of Bach or they see paintings of Caravaggio or um, they read the Aeneid, and it it sim- these works of art simply do not have the same sort of appeal that the art that they largely surround themselves with outside of class have. Um, and so as, as opposed to, you know, throwing your hands up in despair and saying, well, you know, these kids just have horrible tastes. That's the end of it. Uh, I think it's the work of a, of a good teacher to try to help students have good taste. And so it's not, it's not necessary that everybody coming into a classical school loves Bach and can't stand pop music, but there has to be some sort of willingness to have your tastes better. So, um, I, I made a comment in a, in a Circe article recently that if I was a that if I was a, a headmaster and I was looking to to hire teachers, I would want to know about their taste. And it's it's very important that everyone involved in a classical school is striving to have better taste, as opposed to being complacent with the taste they have. So in the article, I said I would rather hire a teacher um, who loved Cardi B but was trying to love Bach than a teacher who liked James Taylor and was content to like James Taylor for the rest of their life. Um, and that, that striving after loving better things is one of those aspects of a, of, of, of a successful classical school graduate. So, you know, if you, you show up at a classical school in ninth grade and you like top 40, okay. Um, but you should be comfortable with the fact that the point of a, one of the great points of a classical education uh, is to is to graduate you with a with a love of better things than you have when you show up in ninth grade. So the coffee example, you want to yeah. share how that works out as a as an illustration of this acquiring of the right taste. Yeah, yeah. So it's a it's a it's a sort of analogy that I've I've used a number of times over the year to describe um to describe what good taste in artistic things is as uh and i and i start with this analogy of you know wanting to develop a taste for some sort of food so there's a number of foods that people often do not like um 
unless they are trained to, um, wine, coffee, chocolate, pungent cheeses, um, olives, I suppose, uh, maybe even seafood. Mm. Um, and there's, you know, there's styles of music that people often do not like, um, unless they're trained to like opera and jazz. But if we're just thinking about, if we're just thinking about food, um, why is it that there, why is it that there are some things that we don't like and want to learn to like them versus other things that we don't like and we're content to dislike them for the for the rest of our lives. Um, so uh, why is it that people try to like opera, but they don't try to like top forty? Like if there's a if there's some Katy Perry song in the radio and you don't like it, there's not really a whole lot of point in trying to learn to like it. Whereas if you don't like Beethoven, there is a point in learning to like it. Um, and there's a point in learning to like wine or learning to like chocolate. And, and the point of learning to like these things is that they're still going to be there. Number one, they're still going to be there a couple years from now when you finally learn to like them. Whereas pop music is constantly going away. By the time you learn to like it, we've already moved on to something else. Next, um, Katy Perry doesn't exist for the intellect, only for the only for the senses. And we want to learn to like things that, that we know appeal to or ought to appeal to our intellect. Um, we know that the things that we learn to like, we, we believe will be good for us. Um, and so, you know, you think about the sort of things that people make New Year's resolutions to do. Like they make New Year's resolutions to lose weight, to drink less, to phone less. Um, and we do these things not because we think that they'll be pleasant, but because we know they're good for us. And in the same way that we make these resolutions to drink less and lose weight, we, tr we have the same sort of burden to like really good old things, even though we know they're difficult to like. And so the, you know, the example I commonly give is somebody who's scanning around a radio li looking for something to listen to, and, and some classical station comes on, and it's Beethoven 7th. And you listen for you know, 20 or 30 seconds, and you think, oh, you know, I, uh, I wish I liked this, but I don't. And so you turn the station over to something that's easy to like. Um, you know, we often feel a burden to like these good old things that have lasted because we want to be in the company of people that like these things. Um, it seems like there would be something ennobling to enter into the company and society of people who like these things. Whereas we know there's nothing ennobling about entering into the society of the tens or hundreds of millions of people who are 17 years old, <laughs> um, so to speak. And, and like Katy Perry or you know, yeah. whatever is whatever is fashionable this week or popular this week. And so for all these reasons, I, I think that there are certain sorts of art, there are certain cultural artifacts that are worth learning to like. Number one, because they'll be around by the time we learn to like them. Number two, because we want to be in the company of people that like them. And number three, because we understand that there might not be um, an intense amount of pleasure to be gained from them, but that they would be beneficial yeah. for us. They would be good for us. Well, and I think just that that was a an explanation that again is probably rare to have to be given to a student population to say there is there's a methodology the method in our madness and the outcome is something that's going to be lasting and eternal and transcendent i mean all of i think again th this happens in so many other areas of life young people are you know athletic they go push weights around who really likes pushing weights around but again there's right. there's a there's a means to the end and um, and in your coffee example, I liked it because you just you asked the kids. I just said, "Well, we if I had to learn to like coffee and I didn't like it, I would start with small sips and lots of cream and sugar, and I would sort of you know work my way to to uh, you know a, a different taste." And so yeah. that's a I think a great 
a vision again. I think what I'm hearing throughout this pamphlet and what I, what you've done well is you've given that inquiring student or maybe even an existing student who never understood it some really solid explanations that I think they can truly resonate with. So why don't we take a, a quick break because I want to I do want to save time at the end of the pamphlet. You do a, a wonderful job of just laying out questions that prospective students and parents could ask each other is to, and or, or and make sure again how do you get alignment with the student and maybe before we go to break I would just say because I think this is an interesting side note and, and that is just I think parents kind of fall on both sides of the ditch of at what point do uh, do do students get to have a voice and I and I've seen you know that done poorly where the kindergarten parent says well Susie wh- what do you think about the school and then and then there's you know and and then all of a sudden Susie doesn't like the carpet color or it, whatever and she's the school's off the I mean that's clearly the 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 wrong the other side of the ditch is um is probably you know over prescribing uh to that high schooler who never gets a voice so it, i think those are also tenuous balancing acts and your questions i think help facilitate that uh, appropriately so we'll take a quick break we'll come right back He's worked with families for more than 30 years as a licensed professional counselor and marriage family therapist. It's time for a quick encouragement on the best practices of raising the next generation. We call it a McCurdy moment. Keith, there's so many words of wisdom that you give us, but I'm going to ask you to, if you could concentrate it all down, if you only had five minutes with a parent group parents or a parent and you could answer what is the one thing that is above everything else and in, in importance in parenting, what would you say? You know, if there is, if I had one shot at parents or a married couple and I wanted to share with them something that is the most bang for the buck, um, it would really simply be this. We, we have overinflated the role of our emotions so much so that we let them drive our interactions with our children, with our spouses and relationships. And so we need to look at that as a Richter scale, you know, zero to 10. Uh, much like earthquakes. Once once our emotional level gets to about a five, our brain checks out. And the problem is we usually do most of our parenting above a five. We do most of our discussions above a five with our spouses, but our brains are checked out. And so we are guaranteed that when we engage above a five, we will do damage either to our word, to the relationship, in, in attacking the other person. And so the simple rule is from now on, when you're dealing with your children, dealing with your spouse, never engage above a five. You know, I call it no parenting above a five, no marriaging above a five. When you start feeling yourself heat up and we all have a tell, we clench, we, we start sweating, you know, whatever it is, walk away. And if we have to walk away 20 times until we can deal with it calmly, then we need to walk away 20 times. That single skill process tool will change the environment in a family. Yeah. I just think about what James says about the tongue. I mean, that little tiny rudder can change the whole ship. So that stupid word in the heat of when you're at an eight and you should be below a five now created five more hours worth of damage you're going to have to sort out. So it's never an efficient way forward. Great advice. Very good. Thanks so much, Keith. Got a question for Keith to answer on a future McCurdy moment? Well, send it to us at info at basecamplive.com and learn more about Keith McCurdy on the speaking page on the Basecamp Live website. So Josh, right before the break, I was just commenting on this, these ditches that parents fall into where they give um, 
questions too early to young children uh, asking for their solicited opinion on whether the school is right for them when the parent probably just needs to be a parent and make the decision. And the, the other extreme is the um, in a, you know, lack of uh, parental conversation engagement with a logic rhetoric student that really probably uh, needs to be brought into the decision making in the conversation. So uh, yeah. how do you see that tension? Um, well, I think elementary school is probably too young for the child to dictate very much at all about their education. But by the time you hit, well, maybe by the time you hit sixth, seventh, eighth grade, um, the, the opinions of the child really ought to be taken into consideration. And I, I don't mean that you put the child in the, you know, in the driver's seat. Um, but if you, if you have two parents that are gung-ho about classical education and you have a 16-year-old boy who is hell-bent against it, hmm. the desires of the parent might not be sufficient to keep the child in the school. And um, so I'm not suggesting that the child make this decision. That actually sounds like a decision that if the parents are not willing to make, the school needs to make for the parents. Like hmm. your child hates it here. Your child's a liability to this school because they despise it. You, um, you have not raised your child to have your beliefs and we are not educating you. We're educating your child. So I think there's, I think every school, I'd be shocked if every school with more than 50 students didn't have one student who needed to go because they hate it. Mm. Um, and I, I have sympathy for parents um, whose children have not accepted their views, but um, it's, it's worth asking um, whether, it's for the, whether it's for the child's continued good that they stay at a school that they hate. Um, your book, so really your pamphlet, as I think as you're saying that, you know, it's the whole categorization of, of the wise and the foolish and the scoffers. Like I, I think this book, this pamphlet, is it, it's for wise people trying to really understand substance behind it. It's for the probably the foolish who didn't even know what the right questions were. But you get to the scoffer category, yeah, right. it's probably um, probably best to find somewhere else. Is what I, I would say. So, right. Yeah, it, yeah. that's right. Agreed. So, what you you identify a couple questions just in the spirit of hey, parents, these are the kinds of things that would be helpful to ask. That so maybe they've come on the on the campus tour and they're home yeah. now and like. What, you know, then what'd you think about it? Um, what, what, help us with some of those questions. Um, well, one of the most important questions you need to ask is, what do you think you're going to have to give up by coming here? If you enroll in a classical school, um, what are you going to miss out on that you wouldn't miss out on? Um, if you were homeschooled or if you went to a non-classical private school or if you went to a public school, and I would say that that anyone, by the time you hit ninth or tenth grade, um, that everyone, parents included, ought to have some answer for that question. And the answer can't merely be the cost of tuition. I mean, as opposed to sending your child to a to a public school, because the the greatest sacrifice that you're going to make in sending your kid to a, a classical Christian school is not the twelve thousand dollars in tuition. It's that you have to give up on a lot of what the world considers to be important. And I don't know that that decision 
can be taken lightly. Mm -hmm. And I, and so one of the questions that I think it behooves an admissions office to ask um, a ninth grader or a 10th grader coming into the school and their parents, what are you going to have to give up to come here? What do you wish the school was like? Um, What do you wish the school had that it doesn't? What do you wish that the school didn't have that it does? Um, not because it's a wish list, but you've got to see how far you have to move that student before they show up. And I'm, I mean, I'm a, a perfectionist as though, um, every incoming family has to be, um, nodding their heads in complete and total agreement and understanding of everything you tell them. Um, but they have to have some sense of what they're giving up. And so, and so asking them what they, what they're going to have to give up. And what they would change if they could, I think, is a is an important way of gauging just just how much how missionally aligned these families yeah. are. What What are your thoughts on on, on re interviewing families and students? You know, it, maybe at, at the logical junctures of going to logic, going to rhetoric, and right, um, and maybe it's not under a th- an obvious threat that you're we're not going to readmit you, but just in a healthy sense of we haven't talked in, in about six years, and and right. are, are we are we on board? Um, is that, is that a potential idea? It's a lot yeah, of I think I, it's true. I think re-interviewing, I, I've been in some good discussions about where exactly re-interviewing should take place. Um, and I'm, I'm not necessarily convinced that seventh grade is the point to do it, even though it seems like a, it's probably earlier. like a convenient break. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I actually, I would, um, I might, I might say actually at the end of eighth grade is mm. the time to do it. Um, I, and I'm, yeah. that's not a, that's not a hard and fast opinion. Um, I think that a, and a re-interview later is advisable where, uh, where you put it in the, in the mm. scope of, uh, is in the scope of the education is, is perhaps debatable. Seventh grade, eighth grade, ninth grade, somewhere around there. Um, but, but simply acknowledging that what elementary school teachers are doing and what high school teachers are yeah. doing will be perceived very differently. Um, I, I don't think that they're involved in radically different work. I think it's going to be perceived as radically right, different right. work. Um, and that making sure that that perception is cleared up mm. before you before you get too far right. in that high school education is very significant. Well, and, and again, there are different ways to deliver these messages. It, it certainly could be a re-interview. It, it certainly may be easier. I mean, a classroom teacher, the you know, the eighth grade, ninth grade teacher, wherever all of, you know, maybe for all teachers all the way through should, should just sort of begin the year by reflecting a bit, you know, you're at a yeah. different, what are you going to miss out on? And then your other, you know, another question you have is what good things does classical Christian education or, or our schools offer that others do not? I mean, just put it on the table or maybe it's even the, yeah. the opening, uh, you know, chapel exordium uh, type of gathering that we declare this uh, to your point, acknowledging it's not going to be easy, and you are making sacrifices. And but at any rate, I, I we could ideate on different delivery mechanisms. But the point is, these are real questions that need to be addressed. I think to to provide students with an ownership of their own education. So yeah. So what good things does CC offer uh, that others do not? Um, is is a question you've proposed here? Yes, and I I think it would be fascinating. I think it would be pretty fascinating for a school to find out what's drawing people in. So as a, I mean, as a, a pamphlet has this sort of gatekeeping quality to it. And when you hear the word gatekeeping, you think about keeping people out. 
um, which is which is not the whole story. <laughs> but um, uh, but but asking what exactly is it that that um, what are you most excited about here? What what is it that what's the draw? Um, I mean, I, I think almost um, any any good any good like customer research is going to ask that question about other products. Like, why'd you buy this car? Why'd you buy this stereo? I mean, the makers of stereos want to know why you bought this mm-hmm. stereo. Yeah. So that, <laughs> um, and and I mean that you know the makers of classical education probably have slightly different goals in asking why are you why are you coming here. Okay. Um, but I still think that they have something important to learn. Um, because I mean, if you, if you invite somebody in your school and you're like, why are you coming here? And they're like, well, I know what you say about test scores, but really I know that you've got hot test scores at this school. I don't want that person here. I mean, if that's (laughs) that's really what's drawing you. Sure. Um, and, and I think there's plenty of, there's plenty of people (laughs) who, if they're being honest, they're like, I think this school is going to look awesome on a transcript. Sure. Um, uh, get out. You know, yeah. you, if, that's, if that's the reason why you're here, yeah. um, you're in the wrong place. This is going to be a vexation to you and us that's as right. well. That's right. Well, and I think too, again, we have to acknowledge whether we like it or not, we are, uh, we are not siloed away from the culture. And so your parents yeah. and students show up with these uh, narratives. I mean, so one of your questions is, what do you agree with or disagree with regarding beliefs and it may very well be that the whole time the students sitting there they're thinking well everything i've heard about you you guys are just racist because you're studying these old old dead white guys and and i'm opposed to that and i think it's wrong it's like well (laughs) well yeah good luck making it to 12th grade without a bad attitude so right right yeah you're gonna be um i mean that sort of that sort of attitude is going to prompt you to just try to needle and whittle away at the integrity of the school every chance you get sure and I think that's, you know, back to the earlier, we talked about just the infusion of new students, you know, again, in a class of 18 students, how many have to come in from the outside with those opposing voices or, you know, the scoffers, if you will, that, that actually shift the culture right under your feet. And all of a sudden your entire class is full of scoffers just because right. the, the it resonates too with the broader narrative of the smartphone. So, yeah, I, I should say before we leave this topic behind, yeah. um, that what we're talking about right now is true of students and it's true of teachers to a lesser extent. Um, About a year ago, by sheer happenstance, I discovered two lengthy blog entries Hmm. by a guy who worked at a classical school, a classical Christian school in Texas for four years who at the end of his first year, began systematically trying to undermine the whole project of the school because he was a hard leftist and he had somehow got his foot in the door. Yeah. And, and he describes in two 8,000 word blog posts, I don't want to give him any, yeah. I don't want to give this guy any, I've intentionally not posted links to his stuff. I've, I've given lectures where I describe everything that he says in these articles fascinating um or it's kind of like how he got away with all of this yeah, yeah and and it's largely through the complete lack of attention of the headmaster of the school where he worked and the fact that nobody ever seemed to be in this guy's classes seeing what he taught he was hired mm. probably because the school was desperate yeah 
uh, for teachers because they had let too many students that didn't belong and they had to hire a teacher who didn't belong in there. And the whole school was just kind of predicated on IOU notes to itself wow. to get more ideologically in, in line. Um, and, and that sort of thing could go on at any number of schools. That's right. Where you're desperate to hire a lit teacher and, and you don't, <laughs> you've got a warm body here yeah. um, that you haven't really properly vetted. Uh, you've got some testimony that he's a semi-regular church attender and you hire somebody who's way far away from you. Sure. Uh, who begins systematically undermining the whole project of your school in tiny little comments that they make to students and little critical sure. comments about the books. I mean, I I think that that sort of thing is well, that, more common than anyone wants to. And admit. that's really scary, Josh. I mean, and that's super egregious because that's an employee of the school. I mean, there's certainly right. In, right. any any school out there would give you you know, some war stories of, of parents that went sideways and got off, got off on things on social media, but, right. but really to the, to the crux of every single student in our classrooms, even those from the most, you know, seemingly God fearing church attending homes, is at risk of not really following the, 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 the vision of the school. If we don't do a better job of bringing them into an alignment. Um, and again, some may always uh, kick against the goods and want to get out. But I think more right. often than not, they will say, oh, okay, finally, that makes sense. And boy, I really do want to be that kind of a person. So um, right. it's, uh, yeah, but you're right. The worst thing we can do is just assume uh, that everybody just gets it or that, right. you know, we're, uh, we all showed up at the same open house eight years ago and I'm sure it's still inspiring us. Like probably not. So <laughs> right. <laughs> Anyhow, okay. yeah, well, we are about at time, Josh, there's a lot a lot more we could talk about. This is a fantastic pamphlet. Tell folks where they can go to find it. Yeah. yeah Gibbsclassical.com. If you go to Gibbsclassical.com, there's a tab at the top of the um, welcome page that says pamphlet. Yeah. And you can click on that. You can read excerpts. There's a link there to uh, a CLT sponsored recording of the pamphlet. So if you want to hear the whole thing from front to back, you can, Follow that link and hear me read it. Yeah. Um, there's information on how to use the pamphlet, how to employ it in your school. Um, the the page on the pamphlet is pretty large. So if you want to know more about it, you can go to my website. It's yeah. Well, and again, it's a great, I'm holding it right here in my hands. Uh, as you say in there, it takes about 20, 30 minutes to read through it. It's actually a great filter because as you say in there, if a kid's not willing to read this, then probably not a good school for you because if you can't get through a 20-page paper. <laughs> right. It's, Paradise Lost is going to be pretty tough. Yeah, you're going to be struggling. But uh, anyhow, well, Josh, thanks as always for the great work you're doing, furthering our movement. Uh, thanks for giving us reminders and perspectives on where we need to check our blind spots and and further the great work. Thank you for all you're doing. Hey, thank you for having me on the show. I appreciate right, it. We'll see you next time. Thanks so much, Josh. Hey, Basecamp Live listeners, this is Hannah, Davies' daughter here. Thank you for tuning into this episode. I can confidently say that my kindergarten through college classical Christian education has become a critical part of my life. It formed and trained me to be a strong leader, to love God. And now as a married young adult, it's really created a foundation for me to go out into the world world that's getting crazier by the day. So thank you for listening to this podcast. It's absolutely critical what's being discussed here. If you could take a moment and send an email to info at basecamplive.com. Let us know where you're from, where you're listening, what's on your mind. We're so grateful that you're part of this Basecamp Live community. Thank you for being here. Please do tell a friend 
and give a five-star rating on your podcast listening platform. Thank you so much. See you next time.